Welcome to the Educator State of Mind podcast, the best daily resource for educators to thrive at work and flourish in life. I'm your host, Jake Ruzzi. Every day, we'll explore tips, tricks, tools, practices, and stories to help you achieve and maintain a healthy life-work balance while working in education. Let's get to it. Today, I have a very special guest for you, Miss Erin Treehouse, who is a school-based therapist, is on the show today, and she has a lot of really valuable things to say. I think you're going to get a lot out of this. It was really great being able to talk to her and bring what she has to offer to all of you because, you know, we talk about what can we do to address the mental health crisis that we are seeing with our students. And some of the things we talk about don't have anything to do with therapy, which I think is a little refreshing for for a lot of us who are dealing with students who have really high needs, but we have very little resources. We talk about some things that we can do that are just kind of naturally built into the way that we exist in a school, which is exciting. We also talk about the ways that educators can take care of themselves. And you might be surprised to know that the things we talk about don't have anything to do with self-care. So let's get into it. Aaron Tweehouse. Okay, Aaron, welcome to the Educator State of Mind podcast. I am super excited to have you on. I think people listening today are going to get a lot of value from what you have to talk about. So why don't you introduce yourself and what you do in schools? Sure. Well, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks again for having me. So uh, my name is Aaron. I am a school-based therapist at a very alternative high school, and it has been such a pleasure. In addition to my role as a school-based therapist at a very small alternative school, I also serve the Spanish-speaking students in our school district as well to help make sure their therapeutic needs are met too. So that's my role. And it is a very needed role. And so for some people listening, they might not know what the difference between like what you do and maybe someone who's a mental health provider who is just you know, the school social worker or the counselor for the school? Like, what's the difference in your role compared to those ones? I think that's so important to distinguish. So um, unlike a school social worker, I don't deal with anything related to IEPs or 504s. In fact, my role is therapy specific. So I'm actually employed through the local community-based mental health center, and they're the ones that help provide a lot of the support and training that a mental health provider needs uh, to be able to keep going in the role and best support the population that we serve as well. So I have students referred to me on individual basis. I also run groups at the school as well, as you know well. (laughs) Um, And uh, I am also set up to help students manage case management related needs. So sometimes that can be related to needing to get basic resources, which a school social worker could also get. I think our school social worker at our school is maybe just set up a little bit differently, but I do get quite a bit of the opportunity to exclusively address mental health without it being related to the IEP minutes that a student might have indicated. So a lot of times too, my role is working through issues for the students in their lives, as opposed to what might be impacting their academics directly. And I know that one thing that you do that you kind of mentioned is running groups for students, but you also uh, push into the classroom and provide some like targeted lessons on things that students are experiencing kind of in real time, like from what you're noticing 
or what other staff members are noticing. Uh, what do you think has been like just in your work with schools, like a reoccurring theme that you keep kind of having to address with students these days? I love that you remember more than I do too. <laughs> so thanks for that. Um, I definitely think, especially because in the alternative setting, substance use is a really common occurrence. And it's one that staff members too ask me quite a few questions about and just curiosity of one, wanting to know about it, but two, also noticing how it impacts students and how they might be coming into the classroom that day too. Trauma is a very, very common theme as well. And it's a wide spectrum. So uh, students can experience the same event, but it doesn't mean that it was traumatic for all of them. And the it can have a varying degree in terms of how it impacts them as well. And then I think this third one, students have much more vocabulary than I ever remember having as a high schooler about things like anxiety and depression and mental health in general. But I see really common symptoms of that, that a lot of times students and families even don't recognize maybe depression for what it is and how it might be impacting their abilities to function in an everyday life too. I think that's super interesting what you're bringing up that students have a lot more vocabulary and understanding of how to like express anxiety and trauma and some of their experiences on more of the mental health side now than ever before. And I think back to my own experience in high school and middle school element, and it just wasn't really something that was built into the curriculum that was just addressed. Like we kind of talked about it, but if you really wanted to talk about it, you had to go seek something super specific that was usually outside of the school and, and oftentimes private. And now we're at a point in schools just kind of all across the, the nation and across the world where like someone like you, who's working for the community mental health organization is now in the school. What do you think is kind of like something that we should all know about how to kind of address these new needs and this new conversation that we're seeing, even though, you know, for now, the last decade that I've been in schools, this has been pretty common, but still, we're still trying to catch up in a lot of ways. And it's still fairly new. And there's a lot of misinformation and also a lot of misunderstanding about how to address some of these with students. So what do you think is something that people can kind of take a look at? I think it's so important, and this might sound odd to me as the therapist saying this, but therapy is not the only answer. <laughs> it's also so important. I give a little pitch to students when they first incorporate into our school about the three factors that make therapy successful. And one of those is that it's the right time and it's the right therapy. So sometimes that can boil down to the type of therapy modality, but it can also boil down to the fact that am I the right person for that student or not? I like to think that I get along with everyone really well, but it doesn't mean that I'm everyone's cup of tea and that's okay. But that being connected within a community-based mental health center uh, can help me support a student that if therapy, they feel like if, if that's what's going to help them at this time, I can help them find somebody that is going to be their cup of tea. So therapy is not the only solution. Students themselves can even be so aware of how traumatic and difficult their lives have been up until the young 15 years old that they are, but it doesn't mean that now is the right time to try and divulge that. And it also doesn't mean that therapy is the right cultural response either. I do my hardest to be as 
culturally aware and in, in curious with the clients that I work with, with the students that I work with. And I can recognize that my background as a white female is not going to align with what every student relates to. I like to think about how there are other cultures, since I, I do speak Spanish as a second language and I work a lot with the Spanish-speaking community, I like to think about how holistic health is such an important cultural context. So that doesn't always mean talking about our feelings or the difficult things that we've experienced, but sometimes that means putting a greater focus on community and having positive interactions, not just with our family, but also our neighbors. Sometimes that looks like the incorporation of, I call them like pro-social activities. So it can be like sports, jobs, clubs, an art class that the local rec center might be offering or something like that. That in itself can be therapeutic and caring for somebody who, uh, maybe a student who has been through a really difficult time and might be showing really intense trauma-oriented symptoms, but it doesn't mean that therapy is the only option or answer. And then the other piece that I think is really important, especially within a school context, the relationships that students can develop within a school community with both students and adults can be very healing in nature and very healing towards those trauma-related uh, responses, as an example not the only thing, but as an example that they might be experiencing. And so I think it's really important, especially as adults, that we're aware that therapy isn't going to always fix everything. And then can I add one other disclaimer? Is that okay? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. That is not what therapy is. <laughs> I love how parents will come to me and be like, my kid needs to quit marijuana. Otherwise, therapy isn't successful. But maybe their kid doesn't see marijuana as a problem. So it's not my job to convince that kid that marijuana is the problem. My job is to be a reflective listener. My job is to poke a few holes when they say, oh, marijuana isn't a problem at all. And I can't focus while at school. <laughs> to poke holes and where there might be uh, some incongruence in their own value systems, as well as what they're wanting and looking for as well. So that's my disclaimer with therapy too. I'm not going to convince anybody of anything. <laughs> I'm there to be supportive and the way that my client deems support. <laughs> and I think that like kind of what, what I'm hearing, so let me make sure that I'm getting this right, because I think it's, it's a, what you said is both simple, but also kind of profound. As we're kind of venturing out into this new landscape where kids are having more language talking about their mental health, having more understanding of like the impacts that certain events and traumatic experiences can have on them, like as we're now as educators scrambling to think about like, what do we do? What do we do? What I'm hearing is that we don't really have to do anything differently in some cases, yeah. like mm -hmm. things like sports. Things like building community, building that like camaraderie in that environment where people feel connected in our classrooms and in our schools, like that can be the intervention itself. And we've been doing that ever since schools have been around, right? Mm -hmm. So what I really like from your explanation is just that like we don't have to be doing anything extra or anything different. Right. But at the same time, we do need to be listening to what people are saying that they need or that they want, because if we're telling them that therapy is what they need, then that's probably not going to be a good option for them. But if they're telling us that that's what they want, then let's help them right. get to that point. Uh, but 
even, you know, we're, we're kind of always in a sticky situation, especially sometimes with younger students who might not have the awareness of the auto autonomy to start making some of these decision, decisions. And then having family members like come in and say like, hey, like this would be a great intervention for the student. And it might not be. It might right. help, but it might it also might not be. And I think that's kind of a really interesting place that we're at in education as it relates to our ability to support students' mental health and just overall well-being. Absolutely. Because within, like you said, within the education system, we have this ability to treat our human students as whole beings, right? They're not just a student, not just there for academics and getting good grades, but they could also be athletes. They can also be a leader within their school community. They can be a positive peer. Uh, they can get their nutrition and maybe their only nutrition. You and I have both seen school lunches, you know, nutrition. I can see people are trying and <laughs> it might be the place where somebody can consistently get a meal as well. Uh, we have an opportunity within the school infrastructure to holistically care for our students um, in a way that I think if we use that holistic approach, whether you're a teacher or a general staff member, is that it can also take a communal, entire, all of us kind of a response rather than one person's responsibility or all the onus being on the student themselves. Yeah, and I think too that kind of taking the next step in this conversation, some of the things that we were talking about before we started recording as far as like supporting staff members, I think that can kind of look similar too, to as far as like building that community of staff members in, in a school as well. And I know that you kind of have a lot of expertise and knowledge about how to support people in those ways. And then kind of on the more intentional side where some we may be seeing some negative impacts that we have to address, specifically like secondary trauma and things mm -hmm. like that. So what do you see as being something that we can do in our buildings to support our staff members in, in a similar way to how we want to support our students? Sure. So in some of my roles, as it relates to supporting staff members as well, um, I have uh, supervised teams of other therapists in the past, as well as supervising people that they're becoming therapists and working towards their licenses as well. And there's a couple of common themes that I find when we work in helping professions, essentially. One piece that I often reference is the stress cycle. There is also a really cool book and, and resource. It is designed for women, but it's not only accessible by women, but there, it talks about the burnout and the stress cycle. And one thing I emphasize, whether it's with clients, with other adults too, is that this stress cycle I'm not the one to create this, right? Just want to clarify that. But what I repeat to them, I should say, is we receive a trigger, we have a body response, but we don't always have the opportunity or the space to process through the rest of that body response. So what I think that looks like is in my role, a student discloses to me something that I feel is pretty uh, intense, has deep feelings with it. I can see a lot of suffering that I recognize within my body. Sometimes what I need to do is that once I finish with that client, I need to get up and walk around the building for a little bit because my body needs to finish processing through that stress cycle. That's not always a realistic scenario for a teacher, for example, but maybe it might look like in the very brief bathroom break that you get, 
is you're recognizing that uh, a student was having a really intense response to a lesson that you were teaching. And maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense in your brain as to why they had that response, but it, your body is responding in some sort of a capacity. So maybe that looks like the brief bathroom break that you go to, you go in there, and if you can, do 10 jumping jacks. <laughs> Help your body process through the uh, stress response that it's had. So I think that's one piece to it. Our bodies are still designed from the times when we had to, the book, The Burnout, Unlocking the Stress Cycle, it references being chased by lions. <laughs> and that our, we had a greater opportunity at that time to complete the stress cycle because the lion would chase us. That's our stress. Our physical responses, we run away because that is the best thing that we can do. And we somehow outrun them and up into a tree, right? And then the lion goes away. And we have an opportunity to celebrate with our friends that we were not eaten <laughs> by this lion. And so our body naturally has that chance to complete that cycle and de-stress within it. But the problem with our current everyday society is that we, the lion coming towards us is maybe a student in a dysregulated stress. And our body has a response, but we are expected to remain calm, cool, and collected. But that maybe we really need after that student gets what they need to finish processing through that in our own bodies. Because if we have multitudes of those every day and not have a chance to respond to it, that's what leads us to these burnout responses where we just struggle to practice empathy and struggle to show up in the way that we wish we could, but can't. So. I think that's one part to your question. And then the secondary trauma response too. So it's a really common experience within helping professions. I reference a lot of what I know through the trauma stewardship book, um, which can be done at times, but it has some really interesting cartoons that they put in there for you to keep you going. But gives this lens of what it looks like when we are constantly being exposed to somebody else's primary trauma or primary trauma responses, and how it can still leave impacts on ourselves. And if we really want to be trying to figure out how we can best show up in our roles, it's our job to figure out how to navigate those, trauma, or those secondary trauma responses and exposures that can look like making sure that we're assessing, like, why am I showing up today at work? What's my purpose? Because if I'm going to go in and save every kid and resolve all of their trauma today, um, it's not going to happen. I'm setting myself up to fail. <laughs> and so being realistic with ourselves about what we can truly accomplish is just one example of how to manage through our uh, trauma exposures as well. So I just threw a lot. There you go, though. <laughs> yeah. And I, well, it's a lot, but it's also, you know, something that I think a lot of people need to hear too, because like as someone who personally worked at, I used to work in a school for students with social and emotional disabilities. Mm -hmm. And almost all of the students there had some super high level of trauma that they were coming in with. Some really terrible experiences, some really like interesting and at times very chaotic home lives. And a lot of that would get brought through the door with them every single day. In my role at the time, like I wasn't necessarily even exposed to knowing what was going on but it was still impacting me. And the 
even though I didn't know the specifics of what these kids were coming in with, like I didn't know a thing. In my role, I was uh, I was a paraeducator, I was a teacher's assistant, and I was just there to support the kids in the classroom. But their experiences and what they were putting out into the world was so intense that even though I didn't know what it was, it was penetrating into my well-being, and it was really starting to impact me. You know, a couple years go by, and I like to think that I did a pretty good job at that exactly. job, but a couple years go by of not necessarily being conscious of that. And it really took a toll on me. Like long story short, I started having really intense nightmares and like waking up in the middle of the night, like having like nightmares about work and having like playing out scenarios in my head with, with students that I couldn't go to sleep. And I was just showing up and starting to perform worse and worse at my job. Because I was just so impacted and it, it got to the point where I had to step away from that job completely. I had to put in my resignation once I finally realized what was happening, but it got to the point where I could no longer do the job. And I see that happening to a lot of people in schools all across the world every day. And I think that being able to like have this conversation where we're addressing like, hey, this is a real thing is super, super important. And so I'm wondering what some like first steps that we can take as educators to start taking care of ourselves, you know, just out in the wild as these lions are coming at us. <laughs> Absolutely. And I will tell you, it's my first answer is not self-care. <laughs> yes, self-care is important. And I really appreciate your um, earlier podcast on self-care too. <laughs> so definitely reference that. Um, and one of the things that it, they first identify with in trauma stewardship too is practicing curiosity. I think the reason why we get so overwhelmed and all of a sudden we are noticing these huge responses and we're like, wait a second, I really want to do this job or I find this work really important, but I'm struggling so hard is because we weren't aware of the signs and symptoms that were happening earlier on because we just, we don't know what we don't know, right? And the thing about what you identified too is that we can cause us to have to put in resignation for a job, but then we can also carry all of that into the next job as well. It is this consistent cycle until something else is done. So practicing curiosity. One of the first couple of questions that they reference within trauma stewardship too is why am I doing what I'm doing? So why am I choosing to show up as an ed educator for myself? Why am I choosing to show up as a school-based therapist? Is this working for me? Because that's another piece too that I think took me a long time to have to really truly admit to myself. <laughs> mm. I loved the last role I had in so many ways. And I was working all hours of every day and forgot to live and wish I could say I didn't bring those habits into my role now, but I did. And I got called out so fast on that because I made sure to put myself into a role that there was going to be more accountability about my work hours because I knew that's what I needed. Practicing that curiosity can look like, sure, it can look like journaling. It can look like an end of day reflection that you just do in your head before you decide to head home. 
that can look like a curiosity that you practice with a partner, with a friend, with a colleague that you trust as well. If you need uh, some of that accountability and it's okay, we all need some of that accountability in some capacity. So I think that curiosity is where I like to start directly. Another piece that I think is really important as a practical step too is assessing for yourself. Within that curiosity, am I putting all of my eggs in one basket as it relates to my identity within my work? So my identity for myself as a therapist. Because if all my eggs are in that basket, when things start to get really hard, as you again referenced before, it's so true. (laughs) Uh, What do I have left next? So developing something outside of your work, outside of your identity as an educator. It could be a self-care practice. It could be a hobby. It could be something as uh, simple as going and sitting outside for five minutes a day and that be something that you look forward to. Some element that you are going to look forward to because as soon as we start to have the day in and day out of something that we aren't looking forward to, our ability to even practice that curiosity is going to become a lot harder. What have you found for yourself, Jake, that has been helpful in practicing that curiosity or taking a first step to address getting stuck in that stress cycle for yourself? I think the biggest thing that's helped me now is boundaries. I, for example, I, one of the boundaries that I've set for myself is that I have a work cell phone as part of my role in schools and I do not check it once I leave. I do not answer on the weekends and I do not answer or check it during breaks. And the difficult thing for me is that my work phone and my cell phone go to the same device. So that's kind of an interesting thing. But that alone has totally changed the way that I can like take care of myself when I'm not at work and the way that I can like enjoy the things that I'm doing outside of work when I'm not there. And I'll tell you what, the reason I bring that up is because if I would have gotten a work cell phone like a couple, like five years ago, let's see, well, I've had it for, I've had it for about four years now. Um, If I would have gotten it the year before that or the year before that, things would not have gone that smoothly. I would have been on that thing all the time. If a student texted me on the weekend, I would have responded right away. If a parent called me, I would have answered. And that is just not healthy. And, And to some degree, it's not appropriate either. Like that's my time. It's not their time. I'm not being paid for that, but that's a topic for another time. (laughs) I think building those boundaries of knowing when I need to leave work at work and when I should be allowing myself to like be who I am outside of work is one, the best thing that I've done for myself, but it's also one of the hardest things. And it's super hard because these boundaries aren't just like set it and forget it. They are continual. I have to maintain them. I have to be conscious of them. I have to advocate for them. And I have to like put my foot down and say, no, I'm not doing that. And, you know, you've seen me, you know how I work. I take on as much as I possibly can. (laughs) And so building up those boundaries is something that was super, super difficult for me, but probably the single most important thing that I've done. And it's really difficult. I mean, it working in a school 
there's the set of things that we're supposed to do, but then oftentimes there is an equally as big pool of things that just need to happen. And a lot of people really take that upon themselves, myself included, to just make it happen. And for the sake of the school, it can be a really good thing, but for an individual, it can be, it can put you on the fast track to burnout. And that is, you know, something that I will talk about every time somebody asks me is boundaries. Because I think you bring up a really important point. I think we struggle to identify the need for boundaries or put boundaries in place when we have this central belief that I think happens in all helping professions at some point that only I can do this. Only I can resolve this. Only there, I'm the only one they'll talk to or whatever the case might be, right? This belief that, no, no, I, I need to do this. And I have taken a few knockings to my humility. And that's what teenagers, I think, are great for. They will always keep you humble. <laughs> but that sometimes if we don't have teenagers to do that for us, <laughs> making sure that we can check ourselves. Because ultimately, the school will continue to go on without us. The teaching shortage will continue to go on without one less teacher or with one less teacher, right? The world will continue to exist. The students will continue to struggle and succeed. And so when we're able to identify, yes, what I do is important, but I'm not out here going to try and save everybody and resolve all situations. We can also take away, I think, some of the weight that naturally occurs within helping professions about trying to help and support people that need varying degrees of support. So something I like to keep in mind, and sometimes I do it well in certain seasons, and sometimes I really don't. And, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's where I, you come in for me. <laughs> I, yeah, well, and also I feel like you just called me out too. Um, <laughs> that is something I have struggled with for, for a long time. And I've gotten better at it over the last couple of years, but definitely when I first started in education, that was something where like, I carried that flag every day. Like if I'm not doing this, then no one else is going to do it and it's not going to get done. And I'm not about to fail my students. And then that, you know, you heard what happens, you get burnt out because even though my story earlier uh, in our conversation was about specifically about the trauma I was taking on from working with these kids, that's only one part of the puzzle. It's only one part of the equation. And this is another part that was, was super um, important. So if you're listening, I want you to hear that you can take care of yourself first. Like you can take a step back and allow other things, let them go to crap. I don't really care because if you, it's going to go to crap either now and you can take care of yourself or you're going to get burnt out and it's going to go to crap anyways. And then you're going to go to crap and we don't want that. So if you're listening, please put yourself first. Like I said, in that episode that Aaron is referencing, all of us could probably stand to be a little bit more selfish than we are right now. And that is okay. Mm -hmm. And so as we are closing out, we are running out of time, but I feel like we could talk about this forever. So maybe we'll have you on for another episode to talk a little bit more about um, the stress cycle and the trauma cycle. And, and I mean, there's a million things we could go into. What do you think is one piece of advice you would want people to walk away with as it relates to our ability to show up every day um, as educators and as people in a helping profession. Never underestimate the power of a self-check-in. 
If you know before you walk in that door in the morning how you're showing up, you'll be able to better approach the most challenging situations, even when you're feeling super sleep deprived and under caffeinated and really stressed out. I would say the power of a self-check-in will allow you to better show up, not just for your students and your colleagues, but for yourself as well. Erin, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show today. I really appreciate it. And everyone, thank you for listening. We will catch you tomorrow. That was a fantastic conversation. I already want to get Aaron on the podcast again. So Aaron, if you're listening, let's set something up because I think that a lot of us are getting really caught up with feeling stuck with being able to support our students and support ourselves. And this conversation was just really refreshing for me. So I hope you got a lot out of it. I've linked the books in the description that we talk about today if you would like to continue some of your research into this topic. And if you'd like to just talk more about what we talked about today, reach out to me. I'd love to start this conversation again. I think being able to take care of our students in a non-traditional, traditional kind of way, you know, addressing mental health struggles and addressing trauma by just being a part of a community and building a community is really exciting work that we're all already doing so how can we just do more of that and taking care of ourselves in a bit more of an intentional way in a realistic way that we can do without having to dedicate an hour every single day to the gym or making sure we eat a salad every day you know some real real good stuff here today so thank you for listening i hope you got out so thank you for listening. I hope you got a lot out of it, and I will catch you tomorrow when I announce the next topic of Focus, which I think you're going to really like. And if you like some of the conversation we had today about being able to take care of ourselves in a way that makes sense and that is real and actionable, like these self-check-ins, then I think you're going to like some of these topics I have coming up for you. So thank you for listening. I will see you then. Thank you for listening to the Educator State of Mind podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to follow, rate, and leave a review. Your feedback is extremely valuable because together we can make the show the best daily resource for educators. And did you know that you can get involved with the show? If you'd like to learn more about being a part of the podcast, head over to jakerusey.com forward slash podcast for more information. I accept submissions for episode ideas, sound clips to include in the show, and invitations for interviews. If you have something important to say, let's get it on the show. Thanks again, and have a spectacular day.